comrades, friends. It's Thursday, May 14th, People's School, Marxist, Leninist Studies. We're going to continue this excellent, excellent guide to work that was done, what, 70 years ago? And it's so apropos today. The pamphlet, Party Building and Political Leadership, written in 1937, by comrade Charles Crumbin, Alex Fiddleman, James Ward, and William Z. Forster. Just a little P.S. William Z. Forster was the general secretary of the old party, which we are continuation of. Alex Stolman is also on the Politburo. And James Ford was an African-American who ran for office with William Z. Forster in the early 30s against Roosevelt. So the last time we talked about the organizational conditions and problems in building a party, now we're up to the part where we talked about Two major considerations. This is the relationship between the party mass leadership, which means the people that are in charge of the mass organization. And the analysis that is given is very interesting. The direct relationship between the growth of the party and the degree of the party's mass political leadership is demonstrated not only by the foregoing comparisons with other parties, he's talking about French and Spain, but also by our own experience. He says, party history teaches us that the more clearly that the workers have seen the leadership role, the vanguard role of the party, the more readily they have joined the party. In other words, masses of people are looking for a leadership that is serious, that understands its ideology, and takes its role as a responsible leader of the working class. He says that's why we're having a growth in the party. He says the more firmly that the workers maintain their membership once they join, in other words, the problem of people leaving, the same problem we spoke about last week, and that we have in all parties, not just us. By the same token, for any reason that the leading role of the party has been hidden, the problems of the party recruitment and the membership fluctuate. It always become more difficult. It is precisely in those districts of the party and situations where the party has the most political prestige that the party building is easy. Thus, it is that in the best recruiting districts, and guess what the best recruiting district was in 1930s? New York. Where through the broad circulation of the newspaper, the leadership in the May Day demonstrations, and in the big meeting we had at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan, independent party activities and things like leading strikes, as well as regular systemic work inside the trade unions and inside mass organizations, the workers are made in large measure to see that the face of the party and to feel its power as a leading political force. In California, the second best recruiting district, the party also enjoys much prestige as a political leader in the agricultural area, worker strikes, marine worker strikes, San Francisco general strikes, in which the struggles that the party did not hide itself, did not hide its life under a bushel, but they came out in the open, considerable extent at least. They appeared before the workers as their practical daily political leader. So what does that tell us? He's saying to us that experience showed the leaders of the party at that time, that although we had mass organizations, people quickly got to know 
who was leading these mass movements, who was leading the strikes, etc. They knew it was the communists. To the foregoing example could be added many from our party's past. And he gives the past example. The unemployed campaigns would mean the unemployed councils of 1929 to 33, during which the party occupied a strong leading position in front of the masses. Party building was greatly facilitated, though we did not fully utilize the favorable situation. And he talks about the TUUEL, the Trade Union Unity League Cold Strike of 1930, where the party leadership was clearly recognized by the striking workers. Over a thousand miners are recruited into the party in the area of Pittsburgh with little effort. And similarly, one of the best periods of the party's growth was during the Great Strike of 33 to 36. In other words, what is he telling us? When there's activity and the party's in leadership, people will come to us. That's what he's saying. And we have to remember that for our work today. He said, on the other hand, our party's history also provides many instances where party building has been hampered by the party's failure to develop political leadership. And he uses notably the case in which many so-called left, and he puts it in quotes, left political leadership. There was notably the case in our many left sectarian enterprises of the past, including the trade union unity leave unions, narrow labor parties, etc. While in such cases, the leading role of the party came greatly to be emphasized, this was only in a pseudo-sense, a fake sense. In reality, the party was only being exposed in its isolation at the time, and its leadership lacked the necessary mass basis. Besides these sectarian ultra-left tendencies, which injured the party's mass leadership, there was also in our history right-wing opportunism by which our party hid its leading role. Thus, in various United Front work, the party tended to lose its identity in the general work and consequently failed to develop the definite and visible mass leadership that was necessary to have an effective party building. And he gives evidence of this right tendency, he calls it a right tendency, especially to be found in abundance in the present organizing campaigns in steel, auto, textile, etc. It is not enough that the party be active. Its activities must also take on a leading character. In other words, what is the difference between us and other groups on the left? In all these mass movements, the party must find ways and means to stand out clearly as a most constructive force. That's the key word. Our job is to bring unity, to try to work with all kinds of elements and bring unity as the real political leader of the masses in the daily fight as well as in general theory. The more the party succeeds in accomplishing this objective of bringing groups and people together, the easier and the quicker it will grow in numbers and influence. But it cannot do this artificially. It cannot be done by just grabbing official posts in mass organizations or by vain boasts of communist achievements in the class struggle or simply by putting out more radical slogans than those of basic mass movements or 
by merely insisting that our party is the vanguard of the workers. Such mechanical attempts to win leadership can only weaken the growing united front and isolate the party from the masses. The party can develop leading prestige only by carrying through a series of practical and political and organizational measures, by proving in the struggle that it is actually the most intelligent and militant influence of the class. In weighing the problem of developing the party's mass leadership role and thereby building the party more quickly, it is necessary to consider two important changes that have been brought about recently in the party's position in the class struggle by developing the All People's Front movement. The first of these is that numerous mass organizations that are officially led by non-communists, not anti-communists, non-communists, but in which communists actively participate, these groups have now taken up and made their own various progressive slogans and activities in the advocacy and the pursuance of which our party had for many years a sort of monopoly. In other words, right now our party is in a position where we're organizing from ground up mass groups. We will only have succeeded if we eventually get into leadership, not only communists, but non-communists, to work together with us in that mass organization so that they don't all have to be communists at all. The object is that they have to view us as not also left, like some groups in the left. If you've ever been at an event by Workers' World Party, for example, in Buffalo, they try to take up every position, and their mass organizations are led just by them. That's a failure if it keeps on happening like that. The object is to go beyond that and to have non-communists in power of an organization along with communists. Huge mass of workers have become conscious of the need for measures and methods. Once supported almost solely by the party, many leaders and great mass movements have developed around these issues. The slogans have passed from the stage of agitation to that of mass action. So agitation is the first step. We have to go beyond that to be successful, to actually begin helping people move from one position to another. Communists can only rejoice at a wide acceptance of our slogan, that the masses are going the way we urge. It shows the role of the party as the real vanguard, that the advancing masses are at least developing a political program of their own in opposition to the capitalists and are thus laying the foundations for a People's Front movement in the United States. I'm going to stop right there. On what Foster was talking about with the party being public or non-public or being too left or too right, on that note, I've actually had a conversation with someone online who was asking about our party and talking about our party and was saying that we were revisionist for not being underground. And <laughs> I think it's funny. That is, in my opinion, an ultra-left error. And if we're not public, if we're not doing these things, then we're not able to connect with the working class. So that passage reminded me of that exchange. I just want to remember that Lenin counseled against those people who say we should go underground when we should not be going underground. 
and what the party did in the McCarthy period is some of the leadership were designated as going underground, and some of the leadership had to be above ground. That's a Communist Party way of working, not just saying you go underground or you don't go underground. I just wanted to comment on including non-communist organizations within the development of a movement is pretty important. There's many labor unions that are not considered left or right, but are still very important to the building of a more material change within a country. I have a question about sort of the definition of mass organizations. Is the author referring to transmission belts or organizations outside the party, or is it both? He's talking about both because he mentioned that if the organizations that the party initiates stay strictly with party members, it has not succeeded. It will succeed when it has non-communists working together with communists and that it has non-communists in the leadership, along with knowing that they're working with communists. So everything that we planned has to start taking off. As of now, MPD is just beginning to take off. It almost took off when we assigned somebody to it, and each time we tried that, it failed. We assigned a party leader to MPD. Not working. Now we're trying a different tactic. We're trying MPD from the bottom up. The groups that are active in MPD, they should have been on this phone call. The so-called leaders who are party members should have been on this meeting tonight they would have learned something about how to operate MPD. So people should not be at the meeting because we demand it. They should be at a meeting like this so they want to learn how they could apply what leaders of the party did in the past to the present. we got to get out of the straitjacket of just our own people. It's one thing to initiate something. It's another thing to have only those people in. I'll tell you a successful thing. We initiated the People's School a couple of years ago, and it was only party people in the beginning. Then we switched to having people that were in the party and people that were not in the party, and we did that, and we succeeded on a very low level. We did succeed, however, on doing that. That's a successful transmission belt. When in the years following the Sixth Congress of the Comintern, which was in 1928, the party called upon masses to beware of the war danger that was condemned as absurd, and our warnings were treated as, quote, ah, just so much talk for Moscow propaganda, end quote. Our party then had indeed pretty much, quote, a monopoly of active anti-war slogans. But gigantic masses are awake to the war danger now, and huge peace organizations and movements have developed, this is in 37, 10 years later. These are extended far beyond the scope of communist leadership. And great masses look much more now to Roosevelt, even though he himself distorted the peace slogan. They look more to him than to our party as the leader of the anti-war forces. Thus, also in the case of communist slogans for the struggle against fascism, for the demands of the young people, demands of African-Americans, women, etc., that were once widely condemned as just Moscow innovation, are now accepted as part of American life. They have now become largely the demands 
of the basis of movements of huge number of people, the programs of organizations and programs of leaders who can, by no stretch of the imagination, be called communists, all of which goes to show that the so-called impractical Communist Party was indeed the most practical and the most far-reaching organization, and that our party has functioned in the matter of the masses' immediate needs. Let me give you an example of that. Vietnam Veterans Against the War was an anti-war organization of veterans. Without using the word imperialism, it was attacking the U.S. policy in Vietnam. This was in the mid-60s and onward until the 70s. A group of so-called ultra-left in Vietnam Veterans Against the War, followers of a party called Progressive Labor Party, PLP. Well, who is PLP? PLP were the original Maoists that broke away from the Communist Party in this country in 1959. And they used the excuse, to me it was an excuse, of an attack on Stalin. Well, if that was their reason, then how would one explain that they quickly developed into a formation that today attacks Comrade Stalin, they attack Comrade Lenin, they attack Comrade Marx. Their position is that the mistake that was made by the 1917 revolution, this is their position today, right now, is that we should have never fought for socialism. We should have went from capitalism to communism. Could you imagine such a statement that they're actually attacking the people that they claimed that they were for, Stalin? They said Stalin was wrong. That's their position now, that we should have never fought to build socialism in the Soviet Union. Now, how does that deal with what Marx talks about? It's contrary to Marx. But that's the style of the ultra-left. There's no ending of where they're going to wind up in the future. So they wind up by trying to disrupt Vietnam veterans against the war. That's why our party's position to Veterans for Peace is that we urge our members to join Veterans for Peace and help build Veterans for Peace because Veterans for Peace is an anti-imperialist formation, even though they never use the word. Every time the U.S. tries to invade or throw sanctions against another country, the Veterans for Peace is right there with Venezuela, with Cuba, with Nicaragua, with China. They're always there pointing to U.S. policies. So that's the difference between how a communist works and how the ultra-left works. Now, according to this booklet, we must ask ourselves, if political leadership is a stimulus a stimulus, we all know that word, it's all over the news today, is a stimulus to party growth. Did not our party grow during the years in which it was actually a monopoly in the left and the advocacy of so many progressive slogans? And was it not that these issues have done so largely outside of the scope of official communist leadership? The answer to these questions is first, that it was precisely the mass struggles led by our party around these issues that the hard task was accomplished of laying the solid foundations of a strong communist party. Where? In the American capitalist stronghold, the belly of the beast. Second, 
that the Communist Party's influence in all the progressive movements of the day, including those under the non-communist leadership, far exceeds what appears on the surface and cannot be measured simply by the number of the party. It has to be also looked at as the ripple effect. How have we influenced masses of people who are not even in our party? And third, that if the party did not grow faster and it did not develop direct leadership in the workers' labor movement during that period, it was due to a complication of hindering forces, such as sectarian methods of applying mass slogans, inadequate organizational work in the mass movements, fierce resistance by the boss and the government by setting blacklists and clubbings and deportations of foreign-born organizers in the labor movement, persecution by labor bureaucrats where they expelled and they red-baited communist trade unionists. And also what took its toll is inner party factional struggle, that the demoralization and the passivity among the working class caused by many years of AFL union misleadership and capitalist propaganda. I'm glad it mentions that. Inner party factional problem. They're our biggest enemy. Whenever we see it popping up, our job as communists who are loyal to our party is to put an end to it immediately. Whether you hear it on Facebook, on Reddit, on Discord, soon as you get the sense that somebody is trying to set one group of comrades against another, usually against the leadership, but not always. Sometimes it's against people in the party that are close to leadership. We got to be alert to that because factional struggle is an enemy to what we're trying to do. The adequacy of more advanced slogans. Besides intensifying and broadening out the application of mass immediate demand slogans and in preventing their distortion, the party has before it a fruitful source of mass leadership in putting forth advanced intermediate demands such as constantly becoming necessary to rally the masses. This is elementary in raising a worker's fight to higher political levels and to do it as basic function of our party, as the vanguard of the workers. Our party must constantly develop the struggle perspective of the masses. It must be the trailblazer, pioneer of the exploited generally. The most fatal thing that could happen to our party's leadership is to neglect this most vital task and thus fall politically in the wake of different sections of the mass movement. Our party's experience offers many examples where properly lead in initiating practical mass slogans. An excellent case in point, they dealt with the general strike in 1934 in San Francisco, a step from which the party gained much real leadership. Our present advocacy of the slogan of the People's Front is another example of good political leadership. But there are also many examples where we have failed to show alertness and where other parties and groups issued burning necessary slogans that won them broad support. To win a maximum political leadership, 
the party must greatly improve its work in the very important respect. I mentioned it before in our classes. We went from 50,000 in the area of the 20s when we were at a sectarian period working strictly on our own. We were trying to build a party in the 20s. It may have been correct to a large extent to build a trade unity league the way we're doing now. But we have to break out of that eventually if we're to grow. So the People's Front that we had in the 1937 Congress of the Comintern, all the Communist parties under Stalin's leadership agreed to change our tactics to identify with the struggles of our own countries and not just on the issue of worker versus boss, but how the people in our history were either pro-worker or anti-worker. And so now we begin to identify the period in which we built the Jefferson School and we identified with the struggles of Abraham Lincoln, the fight against slavery, emancipation, and what Marx and Lenin said about the Civil War, that it was a progressive step, that it was something they congratulated Lincoln for. There were communications between Marx and Lincoln on this. That has been attacked. James Cannon wrote a book at that period. He's the head of the Socialist Workers' Party, and he was the head of it at the time, which was the first Trotsky party in this country, the SWP. And at that time, he wrote a book attacking the Popular Front and the People's Front. Well, during that period of time, we grew from a section of the left to a mass movement. We grew between the IWO, which is the International Workers' Order, which was a fraternal insurance organization based among the different ethnic groups, Ukrainians, Italians, Jews, Finns, Russians in this country. We grew from 50,000 to over 180,000. What Gus Hall called the ripple effect, where you throw a pebble in the lake and you see how many times there are ripples. Those ripples are affected by us. So don't think that only the people in our party, that are cadre, are the people we're affecting. Today, we use Discord. We use other things like that. We're reaching people. People are talking about us all the time because they call me up at the office and they want an interview. And this is what they're telling me. I said, how do you know? How did you find out about the party? And they said, through the Internet. They also find out through word of mouth. A couple of my friends joined the party, and they said it's the best thing around, so I want to take a look, see what it's about. So we have a ripple effect that many people don't realize. It's not that we have 300,000 members. It's that we have 300 plus another 200,000 that have heard about us, that are thinking about joining us, that are involved with us through MPD or through Lux or some other organization. And I'm going to open up to any questions. With regards to forming a mass organization with non-communists in the leadership, to what extent, if any, should you take to prevent reactionary or liberal leadership from taking control of the organization? It's a struggle. It has happened. It's a struggle. If you have a democratic organization and most of the people are close to us, in the party or close to us, they will elect a local leadership. That local leadership will reflect us. When we vote in a mass organization, 
our position has always been to vote as a caucus. So let's say there's five communists in a local parent-teacher association in the middle of North Dakota, and there's only seven people on that. If our five people vote as a unit because the party line is whatever it is, we will be in control of that organization. Even though the leadership can be not one of us would be non-communist. I was actually curious about the Progressive Labor Party as they are portrayed as an anti-revisionist group and their respective leader. I think Milt Rosen was there. So thank you for clarifying that. My question to you is, there's a lot of debate within the lab today online, which is divisive. My personal approach here would be, it depends on where we are in the class struggle. I think a person before me asked, how are you avoiding liberal leadership? It depends on how our goals are aligned, especially in a particular period of time. I was wondering if that's the approach we want to have, looking at what goals we have in common, what the time is, and what to analyze the socioeconomical conditions. Yeah, yeah. Our job is to put a magnifying glass, comrade, on what we agree on. That's our job. Not to put a magnifying glass on what we disagree in a mass organization. Now, we have to be careful. Before the third change in the common turn, which Stalin called for United Front, we had a United Front from the bottom. We worked in the streets with members of the social democratic groups against fascism in Germany and in other places. But it didn't come from the top down. After 37, the best example was Spain. During the Spanish election, the communists and the socialists had a joint slate, and they elected a government that took down the monarchy. That was a positive step. The anarchists were calling that we should get rid of that and set up a workers' republic. So it depends. You have to carefully look at it. It depends on where the forces are at. Sometimes we can join with one group who are not communists, and unfortunately the other group is on the other side. The section that we started at the top with the Moscow innovations becoming mainstream, I feel like this section calls us to humility but without compromise of our values because in our movements we're benefited when communist ideas come mainstream. So we don't have to gatekeep like many in the ultra-left do where they say, oh, well, you can't say this unless you're a communist, or haha, you're not a communist, you don't know what you're talking about. Because as Marxist-Leninist, dialectical materialism gives us the most accurate understanding of our material conditions, and that's going to hold out in the long term, even if it seems wild, even if it seems way too extreme at the time. If we can just hold fast and trust that we have the correct analysis of the situation, those ideas are slowly going to become into the mainstream, and we don't need to be compromising about that. We just need to be humble in the way that we're bringing that forward. That's very accurate. That's what the article is basically saying. I'm glad you see that. I've been applying for a couple jobs for summer work, and one place is a grocery store that is unionized, but it's a pretty weak AFL-CIO union, and the other place is just not unionized at all. My instinct is to go to the place that already has a union and not have to build one up from scratch at the other one. 
any kind of advice there? I could only give you my advice. I would join the place where there's a union already. That's just me. I would work from the bottom, try to be a delegate from that workplace to the next higher body, wherever that's located. That's what I did in my schools as a teacher. Whatever school I went to, I started at the bottom just to be a delegate to the union once a month meetings. And a delegate was different than a chapter leader of the local in the school. So I just concentrated on that, and I began to work with the chapter leader. That was an experience for a chapter leader because they used to do everything individually, like everybody in this country. And that's what I would do, but you should find out from others. I've never been in any sort of organizing before, any sort of political organizing, but the strategy presented in the pamphlet that we were just reading and your application to our modern situation seems brilliant, actually. I'd never thought of having other organizations, non-communists, to be a part of and also being able to sway their ideology more toward the cause of our party in the process. In the digital age, are gains being negated by other people joining other organizations and with the increase in polarization that's been going on? Because everyone's in their own little echo chambers and bubbles. I'm glad you said that, comrade. Very important. I am not of the opinion, not, that the Internet is the best thing since sliced bread. People don't know what that is. Before bread was made, you bought bread in a loaf, and you went home and you cut it. Then this newer invention came out, where you took the bread, and you sliced it in a machine, and you sold it in a wrapper already sliced. So there's a saying that I grew up with, it's the best thing since sliced bread. That's where it came from, the origins of that saying. So the point is, I'm not of the opinion that the Internet necessarily is that great. I'll tell you why. In my generation, we had no Internet, and we grew like wildfire. The left grew during the Vietnam War. There were other things that make the left grow, not necessarily the means, not the newspapers that are written at the time, or the computers, or the telephones. That all helps. All those things help us. But they can also hurt us. I've never seen so many problems in a party that we've had since we have the Internet. People form factions in a merit of two or three minutes by talking to other people. In my time, we didn't talk to everybody from other clubs. We weren't allowed to. People in Staten Island Club were lucky to talk to people in the Manhattan Club across the water because we saw each other at a district meeting. Now you have people in one part of the country talking outside of the party to people in another part of the country, it's easy to form a faction. And the faction is a death knell for a Leninist party. Lenin tells us that over and over and over again. So it's so easy to go on the Internet and defame a comrade and have people who don't know what's going on go along with that defaming. So on the other hand, we get comrades who live in little towns and villages around the country who never would have heard of us if we were operating the old way. Never. And now they come in contact with us. And they're so isolated, they want to be part of us because they want to be part of something that's not alienating them from everybody around them. So it has its plus and minuses. What I've noticed from online leftist communities is that it's way easier to discredit. It's easier to 
even start drama over the internet than it is in real life. But like you said, it's way easier to reach pockets of communities who would have never heard. So what I think that we as a party should do is that once we start growing more, we should both incorporate the ability to meet more in person and to still use the internet as a tool of recruitment and to spread more education to all the people within the party. I think the timing of the internet technology, the introduction and application to social life and the life of individuals, I think is a well-projected, politically, strategically, a well-projected development in world history. And I think it's part of the Pentagon plan to atomize countries like the United States that have reached heavy level of industrialization and a large number of proletariats. And I think this is part of the Machiavellian strategy of divide and rule down to the individual. So I think our party can put a limit to that. Our members are totally dependent on the Internet and they have no commitment to the party vis-a-vis their little machine. I think that must be stopped. We have a policy. It's very hard to enforce it. People put their individuality above the collective. So when the Politburo makes a decision on the Internet to tell people stop, we use the word cease and desist. Stop your public arguing in front of the whole world, showing disunity in the party. We tell them that. Some of them tell us, you have no right to tell me what to do. That just goes to show you. Those are not members. Those are not distant members, and they have nothing to do with the communist revolution. They are individualistic, they are atomized, and they don't belong in the party, and you have to dismiss them. They are no good. Yes, and that's what we're How can they be the banker? Yes, that's what we're learning to do, comrade. Thank you. There's a warning here, and I think it's very important. He calls it bogging down. He says there's a problem sometimes. The communists get so buried in economic work that they overlook other vital political tasks. And when they do that, they overlook the fight against counter-revolutionary Trotskyites, and today we could say the ultra-left. Stalin's warning is full of meaning for the American Party, for there is a broad tendency throughout the party, especially working in trade union work, to devote the party's forces to the task of trade unions first, to the exclusion of other important activities. A classical example he gives is the tendency that we saw in Flint, Michigan, where the party became immersed in the strike movement and in building the union local, that it paid little or no attention to the local city elections. And the Republican Party managed to sneak into power without serious opposition. That's a very good point that was made in 1937. He calls it the bogging down tendency. We cannot function as a real political leader if we do that. He calls it criticism of the United Front allies. These are allies that we're working with in a united front, in a coalition. Constructive criticism of those groups and those parties with whom we are formally or informally working with in a united front mass movement is fundamental to the development of our party's mass political leadership and its growth, as well as to the health of the whole mass movement generally. 
This criticism must not, N-O-T, be merely negative in character. Some of us have that attitude towards PSL. That is, by pointing out the shortcomings of some of our allies. It must especially be positive by the assertion of our own constructive, constructive proposals and programs. So, we don't say that so-and-so organization in a coalition we're working with is wrong. Well, we have to say it in a different way. We say it like this. Maybe we should look at a different way of thinking about this. You see the difference? We don't attack the other group. That's what he's saying here publicly. It's one thing to attack what Lenin called polemics. It's not the same as sitting at a meeting of a United Front organization on an issue and you attack them publicly. No, no, that's a no-no. That's something that the U.S. government will do in a Contelpo operation. They did it with the Black Panthers. They did it all the time. Now they do it on the Internet. They'll pit one comrade in our party against another comrade. And some of us fall into that. I don't know why, but we fall into that. Instead of saying, how do we know whoever's attacking comrade in the party, how do we know who they are? They could easily be a provocateur, someone who claims that they're something that they're not. So we got to be careful about that. Here again, in this constructive criticism of our party, suffers grievous weakness. And then he gives examples at the time in Detroit when communists have too sharply and also incorrectly criticized progressive elements and thereby needlessly alienated great masses of people, especially those in the working class. But in the main, our weakness in this general respect consists of making too little criticism. That's the other side of progressive-led movements. We're afraid to alienate, so we say hardly anything, and we know there's a mistake. This right tendency is manifested, among other examples, by inadequate criticism, and they give the example of Roosevelt, and by a failure to put forward our own program, including a revolutionary program with slogans, to the mass movement led by followers of Roosevelt. The general effect of failure to criticize constructively is to blunt the party's line. To fail to make our party's program stand out distinctly in relation to those of different mass movements that we are supporting. This blunting of the party's line is all the worse when our revolutionary slogans are also soft-pedaled. We've done that in the past. We're afraid that people will view us as communists if we give a slogan and we water it down. In consequence, the leading role of a communist party is thus, in reality, hidden. And the incentive of militant workers to join our party will remain not stimulated. For why should any worker join us if they cannot see that our character is different than what they're doing? And I'll end it with that. Very, very interesting. Remember, comrades, I talked to you about the high wire in the circus, and we have to walk it slowly from one end to the other. Go back to this analogy every single time. We are warned by Lenin that if we fall on the right side of that wire, we're going to fall into right opportunism, 
into reformism, into social democracy, forms of revisionism. If we fall on the left side down to the floor of the circus, we're still going to die both ways. What is the left side? Ultra-leftism, Maoism, petty bourgeois anarchism. All that stuff is part of ultra-leftism. This tonight was a very, very effective warning that we can't go too far to the left and too far to the right, that we have to be close to where the masses are. Again, what did Lenin say? That if we go too far ahead of the masses, we'll lose them. And what did he say about behind the masses? If we follow the mass movements of the liberals, of the bourgeoisie, we're going to be, in effect, tailing them. And that's what the CPUSA is doing. They're tailing the Democratic Party. They're tailing the AFL-CIO. And therefore, workers are not going to come to you if you're tailing. They'll come to you if you're in a vanguard position. I was wanting to learn a little bit more about William Foster. Does anybody know any other works he might have done that you would recommend? He was an original leader of the IWW. He worked with Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and he worked with Big Bill Haywood, who were leaders of the IWW. After the revolution, they switched from the philosophy of industrial unionism to the philosophy of Marxism-Leninism. Some of the books he wrote towards the Soviet America, which he wrote in his early years, which is very interesting. He also wrote the history of the Communist Party USA. He also wrote the history of the three internationals. And he wrote on the trade union movement. I remember talking to a comrade, and it was a quote that I kind of vaguely remembered from Lenin about when there was a breach in the opponent's defenses, you need to seize it as soon as possible. Things are very chaotic right now, and if we're busy squabbling amongst ourselves, we're going to miss those opportunities. I think it's important to, like you said, not to do it publicly because it looks bad. People won't know which side to go on. We all need to be united so we can resist this and not miss an opportunity. When is it appropriate to tell people that we're communist? And when would it be appropriate to withhold that information? That's a perfect question. Everybody should have that question on their mind. It depends on your character. It depends how well you're noted. It depends what people think about you. In the LGBT movement, they use the term in the early 70s of the term is coming out. Well, that can be applied to what we're talking about. When do you come out to people? And how do you do it? Well, it depends. Everybody's different. It depends on what is needed at the time. If you need somebody to be an open face of the party, then someone has to decide to be an open communist from the very beginning. And in certain situations, you still are not an open communist because not everybody reads the same newspapers or magazines or whatever. I was mentioned in the New York Post and the editorial by name as being an apologist for the Soviet Union and a communist. And for me, it was a positive thing because then people knew where to contact the communists. I have other people in the UFT, United Federation of Teachers, who have been in the party as long as I have. They're my age. You know how many people they recruited? Zero. Zero. They recruited zero in 50 years. Because they're still in the closet. 
So it depends. It really depends. There's no rule one way or the other. I feel like this pamphlet really exemplifies our party's long-term thinking and strategy. And for me, that's one of the more attractive things that I found about this party before I joined. I'm interested in his concept of polemic versus sharp criticism. Somebody mentioned earlier, we read these works by Stalin, but if we take that too much to heart and try and do that in our daily lives, we'll just really scare a lot of people off. So we got to know when to take that kind of approach and when to be a little more gentle with it. Leonard, he wrote an article called The Use of Sticking to the Point in Polemics. And just to sum it up, he has a sentence in it. He says, in polemics, one should stick to the point. The question about working within a mass movement and whether or not the worry about liberals taking over. And I think there's two points here that could be stressed a little bit that we've talked about in this reading and in other readings that mass movements need to be not so broad in their scope. They are very focused on a specific goal. And that means that we don't have to rely on everything just on those specific things, which makes it easier for us to focus on what we agree on. And along that line, we need to be making points of unity, and not just on the unity, but also on what we consent to and what we don't consent to, so we know in advance whether or not we need to pull support for a group, because it's something that's not just that we disagree with, but that we absolutely can't support. I've always been learning since I joined the organization. I'm so impressed because my ideological position was very hazy because of the nature of the Eritrean struggle. It's a national liberation movement, left-oriented, but it embraces all social forces and economic forces, bourgeois, bourgeois. It is like the revolution in China under Mao Zedong. This is a united front, but the left wing of the Eritrean movement is still the strongest, so the potential is to go towards a socialist society. We don't have to be scattered by all media outlets attacking each other. We'll fall into the trap of imperialist powers. When they were talking about the unions and then something that happened in Flint, Michigan, and they had paid too much attention to that, that the Republicans sneak their way into office. I just thought that was extremely important because I think sometimes some things get too much attention and then badly needed programs or even elections will go unnoticed. I thought the discussion at the end about attacking other parties was perfect for our party right now. I've seen a lot of this behavior and some of us spoke up against it. I just wanted to say that we need to engage in constructive criticism, not destructive criticism. I hope everybody learned something. I want to say good night to everyone. We keep on doing the work that we're doing. And remember, you'll never go wrong if the class, if our class is always put first. We'll never go wrong. Thank you, comrades. Good night. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information, or if you're interested in attending classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube channel, or email info at psmls.org.